The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to P.I.'s Declassified, an inside look at the world of private investigators. Your host is Francie Kaler, a noted private investigator. Francie and her guests take you behind the scenes and into the genuine, sometimes gritty business of investigation. You'll hear stories from the trenches with plenty of surprises. Here's your host, Francie Kaler. Good morning. Today, my guest is Barry Nixon. He's a background screener, a private investigator, and travels internationally to speak on this very important topic. He's the co-author of Background Screening Investigations, Managing High Risk from the HR and Security uh, Perspectives. And he authors PI Magazine's background screening column. Uh, PI Magazine, you should know, is this show's favorite sponsor, www.pimagazine.com. Barry also publishes the Background Buzz, a newsletter for the screen industry. Hi, Barry. How are you? I'm doing well, Francie. Glad to join you. I'm happy to have you. You know, uh, Barry, I'm thinking that some people might be interested in subscribing to your Background Buzz. How would they go about doing that? Uh, they can go to our website, which is employmentdirectory.com. Um, and click on background publications, and uh, there's a place to subscribe there. And pre-employment directory is all one word. There's no hyphen or anything in it. Okay, so preemploymentdirectory.com. Yes. Okay, and if you can't remember that, listeners, send me an email, francie at picdeclassified.com, and I will forward it to Barry. So, and I... You also published an annual background screening industry buyer's guide. What is that? Well, the buyer's guide is a resource primarily for HR managers uh, and security professionals that purchase background screening services uh, to give them informative information uh, about background screening, kind of the latest and greatest of what's happening, and also a resource guide it features companies that do background screening. So it puts in their hands, if you will, uh, or on their computer screen, um, a resource, a one-stop resource that they can use to get information about background screening or to find a firm to help them. Oh, okay. Good. That's great. Well, um, before we get started with talking about this topic, uh, Barry, tell us a little bit about yourself. Let our listeners know who you are. Well, Barry Nixon is a seasoned HR professional. I spent about 25 years or so in corporate America working in uh, senior HR positions and then decided to hang up my shingle for myself and started uh, consulting and basically ended up doing workplace violence prevention consulting, which 
led me to background screening because one of the things we suggested to our clients early on when we did workplace violence prevention is that they should be doing background checks uh, on the people that they hire. Um, mm-hmm. And so we started uh, giving them a list of people that they could consider, and then background screening continued to get more popular and growing, and then it just kind of blossomed into a directory and a whole host of other services directed at the background screening industry. Interesting. Now, I know you have, uh, you have a, you got your master's in human resource development from New York University. Right? Uh, actually, I've got it from the New School for Social Research, which is right down the street from NYU, but uh, they're two different schools. Oh, I see. Okay. And what made you decide to go into that field? Um, well, um, at the time that I got my master's, I was actually working in human resources for a metropolitan life insurance company hmm. and uh, recognized it was a growing field and something I was very interested in. So uh, I had the insight to kind of go get some more education. And the new school actually was the first school to offer a, a master's degree in human resource management. So um, I was in New York at the time and it was a good school and uh, we came together and it all worked out. Oh, that's great. And I know you have all kinds of advanced education, both in organizational development and resource man- human resource management. But you've also um, had advanced studies and earned certificates and accreditations. What are, what are those? Well, I have a post-certification uh, in background screening, which is basically the certification that people get that do background checks for police departments. I wanted to kind of be versed in that side of the coin. Um, I'm also uh, certified as a senior HR professional, uh, which is kind of the equivalent to a CPA for a finance person, Mm -hmm. uh, HR community. Uh, I have my security certification, um, and I'm also certified as a trauma response specialist uh, so I picked up a few things along the way. Yes, you have. And you mentioned POST. Let's, uh, let's tell people what that is because not everybody would know that. That stands for uh, Peace Officers Training and Standards and Training. Is that yes, correct? Exactly. You got okay. it. Okay. Okay, good. And then um, talk a little bit about the National Association of Professional Background Screeners. Well, the NAPVS is a, uh, an association um, that was formed for professional background screeners. So anyone that's involved in the background screening profession uh, can join NAPBS. And it's an association that's geared towards uh, improving the associ- uh, background screeners, uh, setting ethical standards, um, and... Um, ensuring that there is um, uh, a high level of standard uh, in terms of complying with local laws, federal laws, international laws uh, regarding conducting background checks. And so they offer educational programs, FCRA certification program, an advanced FCRA certification program, and their flagship have an accreditation program 
credits firms uh, through an, a third-party audit that they are following all of the best practice standards in conducting background checks. So it's one of right. the things that's uh, really, really impacting the marketplace. Now, you mentioned the FCRA barrier, and this is confusing for people, I think, because FCRA means the Fair Credit Reporting Act. Tell how that applies to background screening. <clears throat> it's a very good question. Uh, sometimes when I do uh, presentations, I will ask people, uh, how many people in the audience are consumer reporting agencies? And, you know, I get blank stares. Um, right. And uh, the Fair Credit Reporting Act is a little misleading because it doesn't just apply to credit. Um, it applies to any organization that reports information on consumers that is deemed as uh, personal identifiable information. Uh, and so it's the key piece of legislation that really regulates background screening, um, and it's something that every PI that's doing background screening really should have a high level of expertise in, or at least someone on their staff that does, uh, because it's the area that gets people in trouble when they go afoul with the FCRA. Exactly. And then uh, not only is there the federal FCRA, but uh, I know we in California here have our own FCRA, our own ICRA, yes, it is called, and then uh, probably other states do have something similar as well, or some states do. Absolutely, and so it's important that you're right, they know the federal FCRA, but also whatever state they're doing business in, um, that they also are aware of what the state regulations are, because in some cases, the state regulations may actually be more stringent. Mm-hmm. Right, which is true in California. Exactly. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. Now, you were uh, a recipient of Security Magazine's top 25 most influential people in security. Did you get that for something specific or you're just your general life experience? Well, that's a very good question. I think it really came about because of the work that I really was doing, the workplace violence prevention arena, uh, which I had been doing for significant amount of time. I was one of the early consultants in that area. <clears throat> and then also um, the publishing of our book on background screening. So I think probably the combination of, of being recognized and an expert in those two different disciplines uh, was something that got their attention. Well, and I know that you're, uh, you're on, the, we talked about the NAP, PBS, you're the co-chair of the International Committee for Background Screeners, so um, that's a puzzle. How how do you do international backgrounds? <clears throat> Excuse me. Yeah, uh, international background checks is kind of, that's the emerging marketplace for background screening. I mean, it continues to grow uh, every year. And at this point, roughly about 13% of the U.S. population is made up of immigrants, uh, people who were born in another country. Um, and so um, the need to have the ability to conduct a background check at the place of origin, uh, meaning where the person was born or lived 
uh, or perhaps went to school uh, is an increasing need. And that's something that um, is very different than uh, background checks that are conducted in the U.S., which are under the auspices of the Fair Credit Reporting Act, because obviously every other country has their own legislation and requirements. And so it's a growing area um, that uh, actually is being underutilized by many organizations. So it's an opportunity for PIs there um, that want to get into it and, uh, and understand the complexities of it. But there, it's a growth market because there's also multinational companies that are continuously sending people uh, abroad, uh, bringing people from other countries here, and so there's a steady stream of opportunity background screening on the international scale. That's so fascinating because um, when you think about it, um, you know, particularly we are deluged with immigrants in California and some of this, you know, States like Arizona, Texas, exactly. uh, really have to deal with this on a on a daily basis. Yeah, and it, the interesting thing is, it actually goes way beyond that, because we hear all the debate about immigration, particularly at the border states, as you referenced. But um, the reality is that um, there's a high level of immigrants that are seasoned professionals that they're in high demand. Uh, in this country, I mean, they're in demand in other countries, too, because in many cases there is a, a shortage of talent, particularly in technical areas. Mm-hmm. There's an influx in special visas, as you probably know, uh, that allow companies to recruit and bring in uh, seasoned technical uh, specialists. Um, and so it, it really cuts the full spectrum uh, way beyond just uh, the people kind of encroaching on our border that we hear so much about in terms of the border states like California, Arizona, what have you. Uh, it really cuts across the full spectrum of professional jobs. A classic example would be nursing. Uh, mm-hmm. For years we've had been bring, importing nurses uh, from other countries because in place, certain places we have nursing shortages. So uh, it's a good example where uh, people need to be make sure they're doing background checks on those nurses that they're importing from another country. Right, I I know that's true. Particularly from the Philippines, there's a, have been a big influx of nursing personnel from there. Exactly. Hmm. So, um, okay. Well, this is fascinating, Barry. So, how does this evolving legal landscape impact you, who do who does background screening? Well, it's a very pervasive impact, and unfortunately, it's a growing impact. Um, legislators um, have put an increased intention and focus on the background screening industry, primarily due to the recession when it was tough for people to get jobs, and background screening somehow got the label as one of the impediments or obstacles to people getting jobs, and so mm-hmm. uh, it's gotten a lot of attention. But some of the emerging things that I'm sure your listeners uh, have heard about is I think we now, I think New York just became the 23rd state to pass a legalized marijuana law, mm-hmm. uh, and that impacts background screening because obviously it deals with the whole area of drug testing, and 
um, where there is a nexus there is that um, in spite of 23 states having passed these medical marijuana laws, we still have a federal ban on marijuana, Mm -hmm. which means there's obviously some confusion there. Um, (laughs) You think? (laughs) And the issue hasn't gotten really sorted out, and as is the case with our system, it won't until there are a couple of major legal cases because the employers are still in this situation where they legally can reject an applicant who tests positive for marijuana, whether it's medical or not. However, you have a state law in some cases that says it's legal. So it's just a matter of time before that shakes itself out. But in the meantime, employers are kind of in a quagmire as to, well, what do they do? Um, Mm -hmm. So that's one of the issues that's clearly on the horizon. Um, You've got this whole ban-the-box movement, which is basically the movement to uh, take off of the employment application, the box that asks the question, have you ever been arrested or convicted Mm -hmm. of a felony? And uh, I think there are now 61 municipalities across the U.S. that have passed some form of a ban the box. Yes, San Francisco just passed it this week. Oh, yeah, it's, uh, and I think New Jersey just passed, the, Christie just uh, signed their law into effect yesterday. So it's mm-hmm. continuing um, and will continue. And basically it's about um, delaying in the hiring process when you ask an individual have they been convicted uh, of a felony. Mm-hmm. with the intent to be able to give people who have been previously incarcerated an opportunity to demonstrate that they have the capability, the skills, before they just get rejected uh, because many employers were automatically just screening out anyone that checked the box that said they had been convicted of a felony. Right. So it's something that's ever-present, and we're going to see more and more of those laws, and so... It's going to be with us for a while, and it obviously impacts background screening because um, it, on one side, it appears to put a damping on it, although that's not really the case because all it really does is delay in the hiring process when you can ask the question. And what we're finding is actually more companies are doing criminal background checks rather than less. Okay. Barry, we need to take a break. We have so much more to talk about. We'll be back in a couple minutes. All righty. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. 
Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-CALI. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. Screening expert Barry Nixon is discussing the trends in, in employment screening. Barry, you were just talking about the ban the box movement. Uh, this is particularly significant with the prisoner early release program that is going across the country. Yes. Yeah, it, so. is, it is very true. And that's why I say actually we're seeing the trend is more criminal background checks because employers, you know, they read the papers, they stay tuned to what's happening. So they see these early release programs, and um, the you know it, it's this dichotomy because you got the individuals who have been released that um, they need to be able to support themselves and their families, and so they want to get a job. And you got employers on the other side who think, well, these people have been in prison. I don't want to mm-hmm. touch them, and mm-hmm. so you got this dynamic that's not really a very healthy dynamic. Um, and that's really was the birth why ban the box has come about, um, and so uh, you add into that the EEOC guidelines that were issued in April 2012 that basically prohibited employers from using arrest records, and I'll come back to that in a moment. But in terms of convictions, uh, really pushed the whole concept of doing individual assessments. So again, not just a blanket policy. Mm-hmm. That we don't hire anyone that has a criminal background, and you mm-hmm. have to look at their individual background and whether there is a connection to the of the crime that they committed to the nature of the work they'll be doing and how long ago uh, was the crime. And so it's a common sense approach, but again, something new and different, obviously, for employers. Right. So it has to be job related. Oh, exactly. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, if they were convicted of embezzlement, maybe they shouldn't be working as a bank teller. How about that? Yeah, that one would definitely make sense. Or <laughs> obviously, uh, a nursery—they're applying to a nursery or uh, 
teaching young kids and they're a pedophile, I don't think so. So, right, right. Um, you know, the, the law doesn't say, hey, you've got to hire somebody with a criminal background that fits, you know, into your area. What it says, it says is you've got to take a really look at the situation. And let me share with your listeners a classic example. And this is a real case. Young man who was 18, so he's at legal age, uh, got arrested uh, and went to court because he mooned somebody in a public place. Mm-hmm. Um, he basically got convicted for a sexual crime. Right. It's on his record. So now he's 25 trying to get a job, or he's 35 trying to get a job. He shows up as a sex offender. Right. And if you don't look at the details of the case uh, to really find out what was the nature of it, he did something stupid at age 18, and all of us have, uh, you would automatically screen it out. And what I think the general public doesn't know, Barry, is that any time it's a sex-related offense, even if it's minor like the one you just described, they end up having to register the rest of their lives. Exactly. Exactly. But you're right, see, the general public, and in many cases, people who are in employment or HR don't understand that. And so it's like, hey, he's a sex offender. We ain't touching him, you know. Mm-hmm. Okay, so um, in, that, in that area, what does an employer do? Because doesn't an employer, isn't an employer still liable for the actions of their employees if they make a bad hire? Uh, yes, and what you're talking about is uh, negligent hiring, uh, which is a, certainly a well-established legal concept across the U.S. Um, but negligent hiring cases hinge on whether employers took reasonable steps to uh, do due diligence during the hiring process. So if they okay. do a thorough background check, uh, and let's use the gentleman I just talked about, the 18-year-old, and they look into that situation and they say, you know, this was 10 years ago, uh, he was 18, he was just getting out of high school, and uh, now he is, has good work experience and <clears throat> qualifies for our job and we hire him, and then he works for them for five years, and let's say he does something. Mm-hmm. is um, I can't say that they would win the case, but I can tell you is that the, there's not an automatic nexus, the fact that he was convicted of mooning somebody and mm-hmm. that later on he assaulted somebody. So too often that's what employers assume, but um, if they do their due diligence, uh, negligent hiring cases um, you know, are not that easy for plaintiffs to win. Okay. All right. So, um, I know that people can, if they have uh, maybe misdemeanor and even some felonies, they can have those records expunged. Yes. How does that affect background screening? Well, that's a very good question because, in essence, uh, and there are many states now that are passing laws that are making it easier for previously incarcerated persons to get their uh, backgrounds, their criminal backgrounds expunged or basically um, not visible uh, to employers. Mm -hmm. Um, And it impacts it because 
uh, background screeners have to know where those laws exist because that means you can't report that information. And so, because one of the challenges is that <clears throat> the information that you get, even if you go directly to the court, mm-hmm. sometimes is not updated and, the, and current. So you get a record that Barry Nixon has a record, but the court yesterday just expunged it. Mm-hmm. Um, you didn't know that, uh, but then if the, if the professional background checker realizes that, they cannot report that information to the company that has hired them because it's not something that can be used. So it's something that they really have to be on top of as to what is the law in a particular jurisdiction where they're doing business. Yeah. Because otherwise they can really um, run afoul of the law. The same thing applies with over a certain amount of years if you find a criminal conviction. You can't report it. You can't even mention it. That's exactly right. It's like it doesn't exist. Yeah. Wow. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it's, that's why, again, being very cognizant and up-to-date on what the laws are, certainly FCRA, but as well in your state, very, very important to stay on top of that. It's not something where you can be laser-fair about being current because we're seeing an influx of class-action lawsuits around really basic FCRA stuff. So. People are kind of asleep at the wheel. So what are some of those lawsuits that have come down recently, Barry? Well, interesting enough, one is with the with our government, uh, the Census Bureau, um, who is um, being, uh, has a case that's pending against them for disparate impact, which is the big issue that EEOC has raised uh, for Hispanic and African Americans. Uh, being screened out because they have arrest records. So that's one to keep an eye on. Um, Is that the Hauser versus Pritzker? uh, Yes, that's the Hauser versus Pritzker case. Uh, Yeah, so that's brand new. Yes. uh, July 2014. Exactly. What state was that filed in? Um, That's in New York. Okay. But it's a federal case, so it applies to everybody. Oh, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. So, again, that's one to definitely keep an eye on. Um, there's another case, Antoine versus Aaron's Incorporated, uh, that's been filed in uh, Georgia. And that is a case, basically, FCRA, where it's alleged that uh, applicants have, that were rejected uh, were not provided with copies of the background screening report. And this is FCRA 101 stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and so... Uh, again, the class has been certified. Now, obviously, we don't know what will happen with the case, but these are the kind of things that should never even end up in court, in my opinion. Um, you've got a couple of other cases like Reardon versus Closet Maid, um, and this is a case where, interesting enough, uh, the courts found that the waiver that they used was appropriate. Um, however, what they did is the they denied people jobs um, who had indicated they had a criminal background and they, or, and they didn't give them a reasonable time period to be able to dispute it. And, again, that's basic FCRA stuff, that you mm-hmm. have a reasonable time period, even though the law doesn't dictate what's reasonable. Right. Uh, so that's another case. And Whole Foods has a class action case against them, uh, which is about the... Uh, 
authorization form not containing the right language, when basically in this case it contains a, a release of liability, which again, for years we've known that you shouldn't have that in your um, authorization form. So you've got all these cases that are developing out here, and in some cases, in my mind, the HR person ought to be fired because it should have never come to ha- reality in the first place. So we're talking about that uh, release of liability is unlawful because you can't actually give up, sign away your rights, in other words. Yeah, that that fact that you mentioned, as well as the way the FCRA is written, it really focuses on that the release and authorization form should be pristine. And so it should only focus on the giving consent to conduct a background check and not con- include other information. Mm-hmm. Okay. I see. So they were, they were asking for a complete re- release of liability for everything, not just the background. Exactly, exactly. Okay, okay. I didn't understand that. Thanks for the clarification. Yeah. Well, this is, this is amazing. Um, years ago, I did some background screening myself, so I have a, a, a bit of a working knowledge of it. But what's been happening is um, really troubling for employers, I think. Oh, absolutely. I think it's very troubling because, one, it's a, it's a moving target. Um, and so they can't get kind of fixed in a stationary mode of, okay, we've got a policy in place and we'll train our people in how to do this because the things, it continues to evolve. Um, and I think it's, that's going to be more the norm for a while. We're going to see it continue to evolve because for some reason now background screening is kind of on the radar of legislators uh, not just at the federal level, but so also at the state level. And you got some other issues that come into play that deal with uh, background screening as well, like data protection, uh, data privacy. So as those things continue to heat up, because we all hear about the, these breaches of information, that impacts background screening. Uh, the whole issue of using credit checks, which is a diminishing practice, um, the whole continuing issue around ban the box and expungement. So I think we're going to continue to see more and more legislation around background screening in the days to come. So uh, employers are going to be weary for a while. Yeah. Well, you mentioned credit reports. I was just going to ask, or credit checks, I was just going to talk about that um, because that's also a trend, a big, a huge trend of restricting background checks or uh, credit reports and background checks? Absolutely. I believe there are 10 states at last count uh, that have passed laws that seriously restrict the use of credit records for employment purposes. And in essence, what most of those laws do is say there needs to be a clear nexus or connection between the use of a credit check and the nature of the work that the person is going to be performing. So if you're hiring a CFO who obviously is going to have all kind of financial responsibility for your company, it probably is reasonable to do a credit check. But if you're hiring a secretary who doesn't handle any money 
or is not involved in uh, finances at all, why would you do a credit check on a secretary or an administrative assistant? Um, so it really is basically saying there needs to be a very clear connection um, that it's relevant to the nature of the work. Uh, and so we're going to see that practice, in essence, significantly diminish. It won't go away because the financial jobs will always be doing that. But kind of outside of that, you really will have to justify uh, why would you be doing a credit check uh, for this particular job. Well, you know, Barry, I watched that legislation very closely, and uh, at least the California legislation, let me, let me specify. Yeah. And um, what I thought was um, a problem is that the reality is employers aren't checking credit on every, on every potential candidate. They're not, you know, you're not checking, they're not checking credit or they weren't checking credit unless you got to a stage where they were really considering this person. Right. Um, and the legislation in California passed because the claim was made that people in even domestic jobs were having their credit checked and couldn't get jobs. Right. Yeah, and I, I think, I mean, and the issue is that uh, you know, politicians don't always pass laws based on all. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I get that totally. But see, the problem is uh, politicians also tend to react to sometimes the few bad apples out there. So, unfortunately, there have been employers that just kind of blanketly do credit checks on everybody, regardless of the nature of the job. And those are the ones then that get singled out and yeah. made as the case for why we need to have a law. Um, but in general, you're right, and Sherm did a study, Society of Human Resource Management, that showed a significant amount of employers only selectively use credit checks. But, again, those were not the ones that got yeah. cases that got put in front of the politicians. And so, again, we have this overreaction. Okay, Barry, we need to take another quick break. That's the voice of Barry Nixon background screener expert. Stay tuned. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call one 800 350 C-A-L-I. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. 
If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. Today's program is background screening, likely to get harder before it gets easier. My guest is Barry Nixon. Um, you know, Barry, we, we kind of glossed over something I want to go back to, and that's um, this giving uh, the lawsuit is that is based on a person not receiving an adverse report when they weren't hired. Let's talk about that for a second, because um, if somebody is not hired because of something that's in their background, criminal conviction, um, I don't know, whatever it is, the company is required to give them a report, that screener's report, correct? Absolutely. Uh, think of it this way, and I'm sure all of your listeners are familiar with this. If you apply to uh, buy something, a washing machine, a car, whatever, and you get denied, then you get, uh, legally, they have to give you a copy of the credit report that led them to make the decision. So it's the exact same process um, if uh, someone applies for a job and you check their background out with the background check and you decide because they had uh, something negative in their background in that report, um, then you have to give them a copy of the report. Uh, And so, I mean, it's, it's one of the fundamental premises of the Fair Credit Reporting Act. And so uh, we've got cases emerging where employers haven't been doing that. I guess they've been trying to save money, and or I'm not sure what they were doing, but um, that's really what it's about, and it's one of the fundamental requirements of the Fair Credit Reporting Act. And whose responsibility is that, Barry? If you're a background screener, is it your responsibility, or is it solely the employer's responsibility? That's really an excellent question because ultimately... The employer is the one that's liable. Now, they probably contract with their background screening firm that they've hired to do that. And so the background screening firm should obviously, any uh, credible, uh, legitimate background screening firm should know that that's a requirement and should obviously be uh, providing that uh, to their clients' applicants. But at the end of the day, if they don't, the lawsuit is going to name the employer. So the mm-hmm. employer really needs to make sure that the background screening firm is actually doing it. So from a liability standpoint, if you're a background screener, a private investigator doing background screening, and you send the employer the information along with a disclaimer saying uh, this is required to be uh, the, the candidate is required to be notified of this, have that, how are you covered? No, I, w- I would be very sketchy, and again, I'm not an attorney, so I'm not giving legal advice. Okay. <laughs> uh, you know that routine. 
Um, But um, just putting in a disclaimer, I don't think would cover you. And I think that what you ought to do is have a process, a procedure in place so that when the employer, you know that the employer is rejecting the applicant, that you automatically have a process for sending the person a report. That's consistent with every case. Interesting. Okay. So let's talk about international screening. Um, Because, I mean, you're right. This has to be an emerging uh, problem, if, if nothing else. Because we we're not we're not able to check on people outside the country like we are candidates who are born in the United States. Well, interesting enough, Francie, um, we can in many cases the information for checking on a person outside of the U.S. is there, but knowing how to do it. And how to get that information, obviously, is much more complex Mm -hmm. because um, in many countries, they don't have the same setup, certainly the same court system, uh, the same access to computer systems that we have. But um, the basic information of getting criminal records, uh, getting credit records, driving records, uh, those kinds of things... In most cases, uh, in a lot of countries, that's available, but again, the information is different. For example, we use as the identifier a social security number. Well, mm-hmm. other countries don't necessarily have a social security system, so you have to find out what's the identifier in that country that you use for identifying people. Mm-hmm. Um, and the laws are different, so even the definition of what is a crime may be different. So um, you have to. That's why you, it's important to use a local resource that is familiar with the terrain in which they're doing business, because you can't use the U.S. as a basis for making assumptions about even what is the definition of a crime. Um, right. And so it's something where there's a growing uh, network of background screening firms. So many of which are, are PIs uh, worldwide that do background checks in their country, and um, it behooves um, PIs here or background screeners here to tap into that network and to utilize those resources. But it is a growing trend because we've got multinationals in both directions hiring people uh, from one country, moving them to another. Uh, there's lots of hiring of immigrants from other countries. Uh, and so uh, there's lots of movement of people across borders, and we do need to be able to do due diligence uh, on those individuals. Well, Barry, the, ar- the article that I read that you wrote um, quotes uh, as high as 25% of the applicants, international applicants, have... Uh, falsify their education and employment. That's right. And that's because they're betting on the, that the complexity and difficulty in doing international checks that many employers just won't bother with doing it at all. Uh-huh. And so um, what happens is you, you see applicants coming in from other countries that 
kind of are lying about their education background uh, and uh, or using these services that uh, promote false credentials. And uh, unless an employer really uses a professional background screening firm to check it out, they can basically get blindsided and hire somebody that, you know, doesn't have that doctoral degree that they claim they have uh, from some university in India or China or wherever it might be, you know. Mm-hmm. And do you have a feel, Barry, for how many uh, U.S. companies actually conduct uh, background screening? It's a good question, and it really is no concrete research, but the data suggests that there's probably around 2,000-plus background screening firms in the U.S., and it's a moving target because there are mergers and acquisitions that take place and new players that come into the business almost every week. So, But my rough guesstimate would be somewhere in the neighborhood of 2,000. Background screening firms, yeah, and 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 then how many, um, how many businesses conduct statistically conduct background screening? I think the numbers have been approaching probably like the mid nineties. Uh, so in the high nineties is the really? percentage that of many? businesses that are doing some form of background checks. Now they don't do all, but I think the highest form of background check is criminal records. Um, you know, uh, if you, for example, and tying into your question about international frauds, uh, education, for example, the number drops down to about 60% of employers actually do education verification, which I find very interesting. Um, mm. But so some form of background check well into the 90s, yes. That, that's a surprising figure to me. Yeah. Um, even the, you know, the small businesses, mom and pops and... Sole proprietors. Yeah, and again, I, my my take would be that uh, the smaller companies probably don't do enough mm-hmm. uh, because they actually have more vulnerability in terms of risk. But um, uh, I think many of them are getting on the bandwagon now. Many of them are probably using the the quick and dirty background checks that they can do online as a cheapie. But I guess that's better than nothing. Um, but, you know, I think that many of them are doing it as well. But, you know, that's, that's a minefield right there because if you're checking backgrounds online, you have no way of knowing whether that information is accurate or not. Oh, exactly. That's why I say that's, that's a minefield. And um, the on, many of these online services, you don't know not only that it's the right person, but you don't know the uh, timing of the data of when it was there, how accurate it is. Uh, It's missing a lot of information. So uh, it's not something that should be used as your primary source. But unfortunately, there are a lot of employers who are trying to save dollars who do it and say, hey, I did a background check. Yeah, they get themselves (laughs) in trouble. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, So um, while we were on break, you and I talked briefly about um, checking. You know, there's so much information that we get on on terrorist activities these days and people suspected of being terrorists. So mm-hmm. how did you look at that? Well, there is actually uh, one of the types of background checks is a terrorist check. Uh, and the particularly the U.S. government produces a number of different reports, uh, terrorist lists um, that 
are accessible uh, that background screenings can check if that's something that an employer uh, wants them to do. So there is information that is available to see if that person, an applicant that they're hiring, uh, is actually on one of those terrorist lists. And, is that uh, a public record, Barry? It is a public record, actually. Uh, is it? Hmm. And, uh, again, it's one of those public records you just got to know how to get to it. But it is a public record. And uh, if somebody doesn't know how to get to it, can they do a, a freedom of information request? Well, that's probably the long way to get to it. I guess they could. Um, but there are several different lists. I mean, for example... The list that most of us are probably familiar with is the no-fly list um, that uh, is maintained um, by TSA. Um, Okay. And so that's an example, but there are a number of lists like that that the government has uh, where they've designated that this individual is known to be affiliated with a terrorist group um, and that those, you know, the Department of Treasury has them, Department of Justice so there's some lists that they have that um, PIs or background screening firms uh, with a little bit of effort can uh, find that and then, um, you know, get that information for their employer if that's something that the employer wants to know. Well, and one of the challenges with that is uh, many times people in those positions uh, that are identified with terrorist groups turn their names around. They'll have their last name first or their middle name last or... Mm-hmm. How do you how do you maneuver through that? Well, I mean that's those those are tricks that not just the terrorists use because people do the same thing. That's true. Uh, in terms of they'll change the spelling of their name and what have you. So that's where really uh, getting to some kind of a, a ID trace or identifier is real important, so that you can get a an official record, and I mean, that's where Social Security comes in in the U.S. Driving records are very good for that. Um, and then you match up to make sure that uh, you've got the right person or that you, you know, it's Barry Nixon, but I instead of spelling it N-I-X-O-N, you know, I spell it N-I-C-K-S-O-N uh, right. when I apply for a job, but I still use my same date of birth and... Um, my social security number is the same, you, right. you, then it ra- ought to raise a question, well, you know, what's the right spelling of this guy's name? You know what, Barry, we're, at the, we're down to the wire here. We're at the end of the show. Can you believe that? Oh, um, it's gone so fast. Thank you so much. This has been so interesting. Thanks for joining the show. Many people are interested in this topic. And for you listeners, join me again next week as we declassify more real stories from real investigators every Thursday morning. It's PIs Declassified. I'm Francie Kaler. Thanks for listening. Thanks, Barry. Thanks, Francie. All right. You've been listening to PIs Declassified with your host, Francie Kaler. Tune in every Thursday at noon Eastern Time. That's 9 a.m. for you West Coast listeners. P.I.'s Declassified explores stories of deceit, mystery, and detectives unraveling the truth. Every Thursday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific Time, here on the Voice America Variety Channel.